Indeed, the Lord is our salvation. And to hear about this Lord, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And we're going to be reading the first 15 verses. If you are not familiar with the Bible, you can grab a Blue Pew Bible and turn to page 836. That's an easy way to get there, page 836 in the Blue Pew Bibles. We're reading from the English Standard Version, which is a faithful translation of the original Greek in which this was first given. This is the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, this is the very Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we do recognize that you are, in fact, our salvation. We recognize that your kingdom has come and is yet to come, and it is according to even your own kingship, your rulership, your ownership of this world that we come to you this morning. We want to see you as holy and separate and high and exalted, the true God, the only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Father, we ask that you would help all of us here as we come to this place with all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our weariness, even in sickness, even for those who aren't here because of sickness. And we come and we ask for you to strengthen us, to renew us, to change us, to support us, 
to help us to persevere. Lord, I pray for marriages here in this congregation, that they would be rekindled, that their love would be stirred, that they would be protected, that they would have love and forgiveness marking them out. I pray for parents here, that you would help them with strength so that they would be able to instruct their children in the way of the Lord, that you would give them patience, that you would give them wisdom as they seek to honor you in this stewardship of looking after their children. Lord, I pray for all those who are unmarried, those singles here, and I ask, Lord, that you would give them much grace as they seek to be patient yet hopeful, looking to you to provide for them a godly spouse. And Lord, we also think of our context in which we all live. We pray for those in their places of work. We pray that they would bear faithful witness to you, even as many reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many uh, would like to shame a person who confesses faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that anyone who bears the name of Christ would be encouraged and would trust you for their vindication. Lord, we think of our society and for those in governments, uh, various levels of government that have the stewardship of governing. We pray for our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, We ask, Lord, that you would grant him much mercy and that he would walk in ways of righteousness rather than ways of wickedness. We pray for his repentance, for him, for his wife, for his family, that they would lean on the Lord Jesus Christ and no longer lean on the arm of flesh. We pray for our Premier, Daniel Smith, and for our Mayor, Jody Gondek. We pray, Lord, that they would turn from sin and flee to Christ to have their sins forgiven and that they would walk in your ways and that they would please you in what they do. So we actually care for them, Lord. We ask as well, Lord, that you would hedge all these governments from doing wickedness and that they would be prevented even from doing some of the folly and wickedness that they would devise. Lord, we pray that you would help us to bear witness in this crooked and perverse generation. We thank you that you've raised up other churches to do the same. We pray for Grace Cochran Church this morning. We pray for Pastor Paul Paul Taves from our own church who is preaching there this morning. We pray for that congregation as they are in a time of transition. And we ask, Lord, that you would help Paul and help him to be able to herald your word so that that group would be encouraged in the faith and that they would bear testimony in that community as we want to bear testimony in ours. Lord, there are so many things that we come, come to this morning. We're, we're filled with care, filled with concern. But we ask, Lord, that in these next few moments as we consider your word, that you, by your spirit, would cause us to look to you and to unmistakably see you in all of your glory. So come and help us. Come, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is, of course, the time in the service when your attention span is about to be tested. Maybe especially because It seems that I haven't been preaching on a Sunday morning here uh, very often for the last couple of months. And yet I was 
numbering with my wife how many times I've been preaching and speaking, and it's actually been an intense time of preaching and speaking, but I just haven't been doing it here. I've been doing it at other churches and other ministries. But it's great to be here, and so, you, as I say, your, your attention span is, is tested when it comes to sermon time. Uh, it kind of reveals, I think, a little bit our situation that all of us suffer from a sort of a, a, an actual heart disease. It's, it's called attention deficit disorder of the heart. You know, and, and all of us are very distracted today. We're very distracted. You know, A.W. Tozer, he, he commented on this distraction even in his day, and he said, We now demand glamour and fast-flowing dramatic action. A generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. The tragic results of this spirit are all about us. Shallow lives, hollow religious philosophies, the glorification of men, trust in religious externalities, salesmanship methods, the mistaking of dynamic personality for the power of the Holy Spirit. These and such of these are the symptoms of an evil disease. And I would say it's an attention deficit disorder of the heart. But that is why God in his condescension, in his love and in his care, he provides for distracted people like you and me. And one of the provisions that he's given us in the scriptures is the gospel of Mark. Because the gospel of Mark is intended to get you to pay attention. To pay attention in all of your distraction and to focus on the Lord. And so, Mark is punchy. Now, when I told my boys that I said, I'm going to preach on a, on a sermon series, I'm going to open it, and my first sermon is called The Punchy Introduction. They thought I was saying that that meant it was cowpunchy. It was like that, that cow punchers are described as being punchy, being very, very elite in their cowboyishness. That's not what I'm talking about. And you're all glad because you don't want to hear about cowboy stuff. The point is that Mark speaks in a very direct fashion, in a punchy way, direct. You know, and you can imagine Mark having Simon Peter helping him with thinking through all of this narrative about Jesus. You know, Peter was a fisherman. And I don't know tons of fishermen, but they all seem to be fairly tough guys. They speak directly. They're, you know, to the point, laconic. You know, attention then is, is, is always, you know, given to what is urgent. Actions speak louder than words. If you say something, you mean it. You pay attention. I mean, you've maybe, in your workplace, you know that sometimes you have an urgent, demanding job, and you've got to pay attention. If you don't pay attention, you will neglect, you'll have a wreck. Attention is the currency of importance. So if we think that something is worthless, we don't pay any attention to it. If we think it's precious, we do. What, is, what, is, what are these things for? 
Oh, look at that. I didn't even mean to do that. That was, that was pretty skillful. Turn the light on. But what it did, you all paid attention, didn't you? These are attention magnets, right? And so that's why, partly why we're so distracted, right? With our attention. And, and so this is why in Mark's gospel, right at the beginning, you have what I'm describing as a punchy introduction. Because the aim of Mark's gospel is to get you, to get me, to get the reader, to get the one who is receiving this gospel, to get them to pay attention. And even right now, you're listening, but in about five minutes, you're going to start drifting off and you're going to be looking at the lights and looking at the blue stained glass and wondering when lunch is. That's the threat, right? But that you're, the intention is to get you to pay attention. And because the reason for this is that Jesus Christ, the risen one, he has a right. He is entitled to all of your attention. He has a right to it. And this goes against what many churches offer, which they say they want you to give Jesus some of your attention, and then you're happily, you can give other things your attention, and that's okay. Now, Jesus has a right to it all because He is Lord, Lord of all. And that's why there's this punchy introduction to pay attention to the one who has the right to all of our attention. So we read in verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning. It's a different sort of a in the beginning than the other gospels. Matthew's in the beginning traces a genealogy. Luke's in the beginning traces the backstory of Jesus' infancy and you know, the Christmas story. John's in the beginning looks at the pre-incarnate divinity of the Son, the divine Word. But Mark's in the beginning is simply the good news, the good report, the good report, the good announcement that actually comes from Isaiah 52.7, where the announcement of the good news is this simple statement. It is, our God reigns. Your God reigns in Zion. That is the good news according to the Old Testament. Your God reigns. And that's how Mark starts off. Mark is pointing out that God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God is the God who reigns. Not Zeus, not Jupiter, not the divine Caesar, God. He reigns. And that's what's being put forward. Now, who should we ascribe this good news to? Who should we focus on? Who is the one to whom this announcement refers to? Well, it belongs to Jesus Christ, to the Son of God. Now, already, this is the danger, and I know how badly we're distracted, because already we're talking about basic kind of things that if you've been at this church for a while, you, you're like, yeah, I know this. I know this. But I'm going to tell you right now, we're so distracted, we don't feel the weight of it. We don't feel the weight of it. And if you're new here, and you haven't heard about this, then you're feeling the weight of this for the first time, and that's a good thing. Mark introduces us to Jesus. 
We're told later that Jesus comes from northern Judea, from, from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, somebody's from uh, Nightingale, north of Strathmore. You know who I'm talking about. Or from Balzac, north of Calgary. You know, like, let the good times roll. I'm from Balzac. Um, I'm from, I, you know, I grew up in Mazeppa. You don't even know where it is. Terry does, but nobody else does. But this is Jesus the Christ. You know, the word Christ means the anointed one. From the Hebrew word Mashiach. And that's, of course, transliterated where we get the term Messiah. And so Jesus Christ is the name that is also a title. He is Jesus the anointed one, the predicted, the prophesied, the expected one. That is who this Jesus is. So there's a lot put into this small package. But not only is this Messiah, this this expected special ruler, this Christ, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, this Christ is the Son of God. Now when our ears hear that, I, I think today, we automatically switch into this highly triggered attention deficit disorder and we think first, okay, well, why, why is he a son? Is that then discriminatory against daughters? That's, that's kind of how our thinking goes today. If he is the son of God, does that make him inferior to God? You, you start kind of tracking like that. But, but we have to admit, and we have to submit to the fact, that God has revealed himself in language that has only two sexes, male and female. And God has chosen to reveal his own name in male or masculine language. Now, although God is above mankind, this is, this is how he's chosen to make himself known. So although the sonship of Jesus Christ will be different and, and profound and full of mystery and, and awe and wonder as we think about it, it's going it's to differ from human sonship. We still have to f- accept the fact that God wants us to understand something about him from that language. God wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that means as a son, he has a relationship of sonship to God. Presumably that makes that relationship to God like a relationship to a father, right? You tracking with me? Son to father. And in the New Covenant, one of the most striking features of the New Covenant is that God is repeatedly referred to as a father. It's, it's, it's not that it's totally unprecedented in the Old Testament, but it's not an emphasis in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, then, you have God being referred to as father. Of course, we say, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, our father who is in heaven. That's how he taught us to pray. Now, a son in the ancient world, the son was the heir. He was the inheritor. So biblically, the genealogy of families descended through sons. So the phrase son of God is a term of genealogy, a term of filial love, and a term that implies the paternity of God, which is later confirmed throughout the New Testament. So although... 
Mark doesn't really tell us all the details about, you know, the mystery of the eternal generation of the Son from the Father like John tries to get into. Mark gives us a phrase right at the start, right at the beginning here, that reminds us that the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is nothing less than the presence of God, the Father's own Son. DJ McLeod and I were just joking about it, and DJ said, says to me as we start, he said, oh yeah, so you're going through Mark. So it's, it's all about the humanity of Jesus, right? You know, because that's what scholars say, that Mark's gospel is talking all about the humanity of Jesus. But we both know that actually Mark's gospel is actually all about the divinity of Jesus too. The divinity of Christ. The divinity of the incarnate one. Because this means that since sons are of the same essence as fathers, they are equal in essence. That means that the Son of God enjoys equality with God. The Son is not less than God. The personal attributes of the Son differ from the personal attributes of the Father, but they share the same essence, the same nature. And so we're in that place, and and I'll just say, like right off the bat here, don't get distracted. We're at a place where fools rush in, where angels fear to tread. Because when you think about Jesus as the Son of God, we are pressed by that phrase, the Son of God. We are pressed to admit that God is one in essence. But God is plural in persons. In fact, God is one God and three persons. And this hits, hints then at that high and holy doctrine of the Trinity. The eternal paternity of the Father, the filiation of the Son, and the spiration of the Spirit as the scholars would describe it. And so when you think about the Gospel of Mark, you maybe came here and thought it was going to be a glorified Devo or kind of being you know, something like that running commentary, like a, a Netflix Jesus documentary that they put out, you know, and they try to improve on what the Bible says about Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. And I'll tell you what, in this distracted world, the thought that you would be amazed by the grace of God can only come from the supernatural work of God upon you. Is God amazing to us this morning? Is He amazing to you? Like in the truest sense of the word. You're here, but are you thinking about His free choice to give grace to you, to give grace to me? Is that, is that amazing too? Or are we kind of just into some type of a religious mode with all of our attention deficit disorder of our hearts? When we begin these series of sermons, we're, we're actually starting by encountering the living God today. And then we hear these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we have to admit, as John Newton said, the Lord Jesus and the world that crucified Him are competitors for our hearts. The world is competing, trying to get your heart. And you know what? Jesus won't suffer any competitors. He wants all your heart. And so as we start, you, you're, you're pressed right now, each of you, 
is pressed. Will you yield to this amazement? Will you yield to seeing God as He really is? Or are you now going to start distracting yourself in your mind and thinking about ways to squirm out and get away from the demand of this God upon you? We've got a whole world out there that's just waiting as soon as you leave the doors here. Actually, it's already in your mind, but when you leave the doors here, there's a whole world that wants to flatter you and draw you in. But, but God has placed you in this blessed position here right at this moment in time and space. There is no neutral ground between the world and God. And Mark is telling us about this Christ that if the gospel is our God reigns, you now are obligated to give your full attention to the Son of God. All of it. All of it. You're obligated. Now that's how it starts off. Now, of all the things that Mark could lead with after making this kind of opening thesis statement, he gives a big quotation, which you know, in homiletics class or in public speaking class, they say, don't do that. Don't lead with a big quotation. Because why? Because everybody tunes out. They just go to sleep, like you're threatening to do at this moment. But, but the quotation is, is it's so strange because it's partly about somebody other than Jesus. So he's starting to talk about Jesus, and then he's not going to talk about Jesus. It doesn't seem to make sense. The quotation, you see it there in verse 2. It says it's from Isaiah the prophet. But notice what Mark is doing. He says very definitively, he says, as it is, what? Written. Mark doesn't want his readers to think that this narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ appeared without a context. Jesus has come, and he's entered into a long stream of promises. God is the God who promises. Have you been looking for any promises in any leaders, rulers, government people, business people? Looking for promises kept? How's that going for you? Lots of faith in the government here. Yeah, right. Okay. Or whatever doesn't matter. Nobody keeps promises in our society. But God keeps his promises. He has the ability to create reality out of nothing. And he can bind himself to the creation of future realities so much so that he can just, he actually knows what's going to happen, but he can actually make it happen. He's omnipotent as well as omniscient. He can ensure that it will happen in time and space because he is omnipresent. So when Mark opens by citing a recorded prophecy, he's initiating a test. He's initiating a test. Do the facts of Jesus Christ line up with recorded predictions and prophecies given seven and a half centuries before Jesus' birth? That's why he's opening with this as it is written. It's like someone, it's hard for us to imagine. And I mean, you know, even my historical reference I'm going to make, you won't even maybe even know about it. But it'd be like somebody from the time of the Eighth Crusade 
Do you know when that is? So, so that's, that's like 1270. Yeah, I, have, I don't even know what that is. Like, what's going on then? But somebody from 1270 during the time of the Crusades prophesying about the iPhone. And yet that comparison is not even on the level of this comparison. That's the hugeness of the gap to prophesy about what's going to be basically laid out here, the anticipation of the Messiah. So, it's really uncomfortable. So, he says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, you, some of you got your antenna up already because you're thinking, okay, yeah, but this is two quotations. This is Isaiah and a different prophet, Malachi. Why does it just say Isaiah? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, it's under the heading of Isaiah the prophet. You've got the prophecy of Malachi in verse 2 and then Isaiah himself in verse 3. But both verses refer to the promised messenger sent from God. The messenger of verse 2 prepares the way for the coming of the Lord God, the God of Israel. And so this messenger, we could describe him as the forerunner, as the scout, as the preparer. He announces the arrival of the Lord before the Lord comes. Now, his announcement was given in the wilderness, and that was supposed to remind every Israelite of the wilderness wanderings which Israel suffered before they entered the promised land of Canaan. This forerunner prepares people to receive the Lord. He makes it clear to them that the Lord is, is arriving. And in this way, he kind of makes the path straight. Because he's saying, hey, you want direct access to the Lord? Then get on this path. And that's what he did. And we read in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, we're told that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's more like the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. He's not really talking about Jesus. And then he got, you know, this thing long before there was people selling cricket flour. I know you're going out to Costco this afternoon to buy your cricket flour. No, you got, you got John the Baptist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. That was like a World Economic Forum joke, but that's only for the weird conspiracy theorists that think like me. None of, none of the rest of you got it. That's okay. You don't care about eating bugs. It's all right. That's just me and my extreme right uh, views coming out, my fears. But it's interesting, what does he wear? He's wearing this camel hair, you know, leather belt. Well, it's actually sort of like a uniform. It's, it's what prophets would wear. Isaiah in Isaiah 20 was told to take it off, you know, by God. It was kind of a symbol. Uh, Elijah the Tishbite in, first, in 2, Kings, uh, 2 Kings 1, he had the same gear. You know, had this rough cloak, leather belt, the whole deal. Of course, my question is, did he wear a belt buckle? Um, yeah, that's what I want to know. Big hubcap, satellite dish. Something. 
That was for my boys, but anyways. John, John the Baptist, his ministry was outside of Jerusalem in the place where at that time in history, we would say all the preppers and the doomsdayers were all gathered. So you maybe know about the discovery in 1946. There was two shepherds, look, they were looking in a cave in that area, and they came across uh, these, these earthen jars, and in them were all of these manuscripts. And that archaeological discovery became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that gives us then this description of a community that basically they, they thought Jerusalem was corrupt, so they headed out into the desert to have their little kind of prepper community. And so it was, the community was called Qumran. Now John likely knew this community since he was confronting Israel's corrupt establishment just like those guys were. But nevertheless, the emphasis in this instance is that John the Baptist himself was the messenger of the Lord. He is the one who went before the Lord's arrival to prepare for people to have direct access to God. And this is where, if you didn't, you're not tracking with how high Mark views God, how high Mark views Jesus Christ, if John the Baptist is the messenger Malachi and Isaiah talk about, then his job as an advanced, he's an advanced party for nothing more than, nothing, no one else other than Jehovah himself. It's Jehovah coming. And if Jehovah is coming, the covenant Lord of Israel, the Lord who delivered Israel from Pharaoh, the Lord who appeared to Isaiah in the temple, the Lord who brought Israel back from the captivity in Babylon, then that means Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. John the Baptist, in preparing for Jesus, is preparing the way for the God of the Old Testament, the true God, the God over all. And that's why then Jesus, it's his cousin John, remember, his cousin John can speak about Jesus in a way that cousins don't speak about other cousins. He says, verse 7, he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who but Jehovah could baptize with the Holy Spirit? There's no one else who could. So already, John was getting everybody set up and ready for a new thing. Something new. The Jews could no longer be content in their Jewishness. The Gentiles could no longer be content in their ignorance. Jesus is Jehovah, and if so, then He was going to baptize His new people with the Holy Spirit. And that is what is being started. You know, Matthew, in his account, he adds to Mark and says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Do you realize that then when, when God saves a person, he delivers them through a kind of a fire? This is a, a holy, miraculous thing to be, to be washed in fire, to be immersed in flames. 
to be submerged into the Holy Spirit's presence to purge and to purify. That's what it is to be converted, is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, how did John the Baptist fulfill this commission as the forerunner? How did he do it? Well, verse 4, he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this, this means that water baptism, and a bunch of the elders, we were just doing baptism interviews in the first hour. Water baptism was a ritual that symbolized repentance. It's not repentance itself, but it symbolizes repentance. And repentance is a personal, volitional, conscious, immersive choice to turn from sin and turn to God. And in so doing, then a person could be forgiven of their sins by God. This, this was the preparation work that John the Baptist did. He, he took all the religious people of Israel that were content in their religiousness and he said that they needed to turn from their sin and be baptized and turn toward the near appearing of the Lord. It was a massive disruption. It was historically a disruption. It was redemptively a, dis, a, a disruption. Because they were thinking, well, I, I just got to you know, make sure I got enough sheep here for my sin sacrifices at the temple. You know, just keep that herd, you know, big size because I got lots of sins, right? No, no, disruption. No, you need, to be, you need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. So, at this point, it's, I mean, maybe you're seeing it's a little bit strange. There's still not much of anything about Jesus. But what we see clearly is that a break has been introduced, a break between the old and the new between being safe in the covenant community of Israel and now being confronted with the need to turn from sin and enter into this new covenant relationship with God. And it's marked by a new sign, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, this is why Jews who reject Jesus don't go to heaven. If you're, if you're a Jewish person here today and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, your Jewishness will not save you. You need to believe on the true Jew, the true Israel, Jesus Christ. So that's the reason. They need to repent and enter this new covenant relationship with God. And just one more quick thing on that point. John the Baptist, notice he didn't baptize people at the temple. Did you ever think about that? He's, he's, out, he's out in the country. He's out at, out at the Jordan. He's baptizing the Jordan. It's, it's nothing to do with the temple. For the forgiveness of sins. Wanting forgiveness of sins, not in relation to the temple, all the temple paraphernalia. Yeah, just bypasses that because he's introducing a new thing where people can direct, directly engage with God. That's the privilege of the new covenant is direct engagement with God through the provision that Jesus brings, which John is anticipating. So John is confronting complacency, and this is a punchy introduction well it's all just preparation it's all just preparation because what mark wants us to grasp in verse 9 he, he's going to finally introduce us to jesus just barely 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Mark doesn't bother filling in the details. He doesn't tell us about the the dialogue between Jesus and his cousin John. Mark's point is simply to show that Jesus was baptized away from the temple system, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're not told all that John the Baptist preached or how John the Baptist thought, why, you know, if he thought he needed to be baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. We have that in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. But the point to see is that Jesus was participating in this major break with the old system, the old covenant. And although he was being baptized for the forgiveness of sins, we have to remember that he is the Son of God. And of his essence, he cannot lie. He cannot sin. So as Paul later said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why then later on Jesus, in, in, in the other gospel, he can tell John the Baptist, permit this now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus isn't needing baptism for his sins. It is so that he can be a representative for the sins of his people. Now, if we question whether Jesus was supremely sinless, because I know there's some real, you know, theology wonks in this group that, oh, well, you know, could Jesus have sinned? Did he sin? You know, and you, you have those kind of philosophical debates over lunch, you know, all those kinds of things. So you're maybe thinking, well, was he sinless or not? Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately, immediately, of course, theme, theme word, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, when we have baptism service, it's awesome. It's not quite like this. Imagine what this means. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The cosmic barrier between heaven and earth was torn open. The thickly woven matrix holding back heaven from descending to earth, it was ripped open and heaven comes down. And God the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus Christ. The anointed one was anointed. The Spirit's descent. It it couldn't even be described in human language precisely. Do you get this? Do people get this wrong? Mark is left to describe it with a simile. What's simile? English majors? Comparison using like or as? It's like a dove. This Holy Spirit isn't a dove. Holy Spirit isn't a bird. Martin Luther said about some people, he said, yeah, I think they swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. That wasn't in my notes, but it's a funny Lutherism. The Spirit's work in the world has been described with analogies of bird-like characteristics. Most notably, the Spirit in the beginning in Genesis 1 broods over, hovers over the face of the earth in a you know, kind of bird-like, hen-like way. 
But as we're faced with the limits of human language to describe the Spirit's descent on Jesus, we have recorded then in unmistakable terms God revealing Himself very understandably in human language. And what does He say? What's the special message that speaks so clearly so that all in attendance would hear His voice? A voice, verse 11, came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Imagine that, the voice of God speaking to the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. The Son as the object of God's special love. The Son as beloved of His Father. Some of us, it just, it's beyond our ability to imagine because all we know are relationships between fathers and sons and familial relationships that are marred and flawed by sin. But this is high, high and holy and pristine and special and supernatural. What does God the Father say of God the Son incarnate Jesus Christ? With you, you especially, you uniquely, with you incomparably, with you I am well pleased. See, there's something built into sons, human sons, that they're empowered and emboldened when they know that their father is well pleased with them. And Jesus of Nazareth embarked on a great mission from this point. He had made the break with the old system, and from then on he ventured forth with his heavenly Father's smile upon him. And he stepped forward into the most important and most dangerous mission the world has ever known. And he stepped forward as a true son of his Father, knowing that he is beloved. It's amazing to think about these things, to dwell upon them and not be distracted away from the wonder of the Father's love for the Son. Now, in your life, when you have something difficult that God wants you to do, very often, before that difficulty, you can look back and you see, oh, well, he, he actually had me kind of getting a depth of training or there was a time where I had all this growth and I grew in experience and I stockpiled all this wisdom. And you thought, oh, well, I just got to keep stockpiling and it's all going to be smooth and I'm just going to grow and be, you know, get smarter and more wise and more godly. But then God takes all that and then he drives you into difficulty. Right? Is, is that, isn't that the case? You think, oh, well, I should just keep going swimmingly like this. But no, it goes swimmingly for a while, and then you're driven into difficulty. And we get thrown off because we think we kind of arrived at glory land that we're pursuing. But God wants us on mission. He equips us to drive us to difficulty. And he did it with Jesus. You see the urgency and the push of verse 12. The Spirit immediately did what? Drove him out into the wilderness. Drove him. Pushed him. No waiting. No lingering. Of course, immediately 
you know, the, the next action took place. Immediately is a word that Mark uses repeatedly. Now, in terms of timeline, you may know that Mark doesn't fill in the timeline. His point is the highlight, the drumbeat, on and on and on, the march, the momentum, the building swell of the wave, the, the massing of the avalanche, the Spirit then driving him into the wilderness. Having the Father's pleasure, but then driven into the worst of the worst situation. The mission of Jesus was to go straight at the suffering. There's suffering ahead. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to be pushed into it. There's no getting away from it. I'm going to go toward the suffering. To be, gr- to be actually driven to confront Satan. Driven to the place where mankind was weakest. Where Israel, the best of the best where they had failed miserably. Where? In the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, verse 13. And the angels were ministering to him. Mark doesn't comment on the substance of the temptations. Matthew 4, Luke 4, they give us all the rundown, all the details. But Mark wants us to focus on the fact of the 40 days in the wilderness and the fact of the temptation by Satan. Mark wants us to see that Jesus was tested and he was tempted just like Israel was when they were in the wilderness. And as Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. What's Mark's gospel about? It's actually about his the life and ministry of Jesus as the Son of God, as superior to Israel's record as they tried to be the Son of God and failed. So Mark is showing the qualifications of Jesus as the Son of God. That's what he is showing us. That's what the Gospel of Mark is about. Now why should you care? Why should you care? Why why does it matter if Jesus went through some tests? Why does that matter as you're getting on and you're getting distracted? It matters because the world looks in vain for someone who can withstand the tests and the temptations and the trials of this life. We're looking for someone that we can all get behind. We want somebody that can be our champion, someone to lead the way, who can face all the adversity, all the depravity. We look for someone who has tripped every satanic trap and escaped who, who can lead us through the minefield of this fallen, cursed world. We're looking for someone. And Mark is just going to say it and leave it there. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He re- Jesus ran the gauntlet. And the wilderness temptations were just the beginning. They were just the beginning. After those temptations, Jesus didn't get a hero's welcome. He was in the desert with the wild animals, but what he did get was angels waiting on him, serving him. And it showed the angels that he was qualified to overcome their enemy, the fallen angel, Satan. So the angels served him and ministered to him. But then Mark still wants us to see that this man from Galilee was no ordinary man. He's the Son of God, qualified to defeat Satan. And, G- and John the Baptist was making a way for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. So it says in verse 14, after John was arrested, again, skipping lots in the timeline, 
Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what, what actually did Jesus say? Jesus And Mark tells us, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is saying that there had been a time change. Not daylight savings time. Jesus saving time. That's the time change. It's Jesus saving time. And John the Baptist ministry was that, that preparation, that hinge point of history. He prepared the way for the Lord. So Jesus, speaking of his own rule and reign, he can say the kingdom of God is at hand. He was announcing that the kingdom was inbreaking to the present and the king was putting everybody on notice. Pay attention. You need to swear allegiance. You need to make that pledge of allegiance to me. That's what Jesus was saying. He pointed them to the good news that Isaiah had preached and that John the Baptist preached and he said, repent and believe in the gospel. And this word is aimed directly at each soul here. Each one, across time and space, to each of us. It is to turn and to trust. To, to flee to faith. To, to look and to live. It is aimed at all of us to repent and believe in the gospel. All of your attention is being forced to look to Him. And if you resist looking to Him, you are an utter rebel. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Beloved Son. He is the Lord whose way was prepared. And He is now the center of the whole universe. All people, not just in this room, but all people in this city and in this nation and in this world, all people are summoned to believe in Him. They are obligated to believe in Him. A.W. Tozer Describing churches of his day that applies to our day, he said, The true follower of Christ will not ask, If I embrace this truth, what will it cost me? Rather, he will say, This is truth. God help me to walk in it, let come what may. This is the thing. We are distracted from what is the truth. But we have to simply accept the truth and trust God, come what may. The question is for you this morning as we close. Are you confronted with the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in such a way that you are attentive to it? Or are you dull to it? Maybe you think it's all too costly. But see, if you follow Christ, as Tozer said, you will say, this is truth. The weight of truth. The weight that cannot be avoided. This is truth in all of its punchiness. Truth in all of its costs. Truth that is precious and demanding of our attention. And the question is, do you view Jesus Christ rightly? Do you see Him as the all-powerful Jehovah? Do you see Him as baptizing with a washing of holy, sacred fire? Do you see Him demanding your attention right now 
your full attention immediately and forevermore. This morning, friends, the simple application is we need to confess our sins of distraction, of inattention in this church. That's, that's not about somebody else. It's about you. It's about me. We're distractive and inattentive, and we're bored by the wondrous things of God. We need to give attention to the one who is entitled to it. That is what Mark's punchy introduction is intended to do. It simply says, pay attention. And in your life right now, God is saying to you right here, whether you're a young person or you're an older person or anybody in between, he is saying to you right now, pay attention. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Pay attention to him today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would grant us repentance and give us eyes to see. Take the scales from our eyes that we would see Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. Let us see him in all his glory. Make it so, for we ask this in his righteous name. Amen. Please stand as we respond, praising the greatness of God. Please stand. Is God being glorified through you today? Or are you a stranger to grace? I urge you to flee to Christ, to look to him today. And if you are confused or you need help, then please come talk to me or talk to one of the elders. There's even many people here in the church that would talk to you and point you to Jesus Christ so that you are honoring him as both Savior and Lord. And at the end, even as the prophecy of Revelation declares to us this voice of praise, all of these saints say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. He has begun to reign in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn and submit to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Go in peace.